We kick off a new director series, but this time with a dual twist. One, we haven't talked of a female director in this series, but two, we are discussing multiple directors. Two directors in this uh, series, because they are really inseparable. Mabel Chung and Alex Law are partners in life and film, and have given us an autumn's tale, painted faces, and eight tales of gold over the years. So join me, Kenobi, and Tom KW for the director series episode 28 on... Mabel Chung and Alex Law will join us for the series, but we'll kick off episode 28 with their 1985 debut feature, The Illegal Immigrant. And welcome back to the director's series. Uh, we've been away for a little bit and uh, I think it's uh, wise to sort of look back a little bit on our prior director series because between then and now we actually um, sadly lost the director we covered last series that was Ringo Lam uh, a few months after we posted our last episode uh, we uh, we found out that Ringo Lam unfortunately had passed away so we won't be seeing any more films from from the man but uh, obviously I, I, as I always say because it makes me feel better he obviously left something that uh, is going to stay we, yeah. we don't have to look hard to um, experience what he gave us uh, personally, but obviously a, a sad loss uh, that um, he, he did pass away. Yeah, yeah, really sad, but also, um, you know, kind of glad to have been able to cover his work kind of before uh, he passed away. So, yeah, I'm glad we kind of got to him, you know, before he did, he did uh, leave us, unfortunately. Someone else have to make the other side of Gentleman sequel for us yeah we'll get his son has he got a son daughter we'll get him on it we'll contact him via linkedin and we'll get him on it let's do it because the tale of the plastic jacket needs to go on we need a sequel <laughs> well alan tam's still available so of course he is he'll do it and uh apparently have no standards because that's that fooling around jang who movie that he made a couple of years ago was horse crap so was there uh, any plastic jackets in that or has he decided to upgrade polyester or lacking in every department, including plastic jacket uh, department. Oh, so, uh, but uh, regardless, uh, R.I.P. Uh, Ringo Lamb. So uh, that's uh, uh, pull out your copy of uh, City on Fire or School on Fire or Full Contact and um, raise a glass to the man. I suppose. Hell yeah. But uh, we're here to discuss uh, Mabel Chung and Alex Law. Maybe not the most uh, action-filled filmography, but they do work uh, and have worked with uh, some of the best over the years uh, from the action arena if you will uh, they have collaborated a lot with Samohong both uh, in dramatic fair and uh, in some action fair and uh, this series is going to cover all of that but uh, before we do the rundown and uh, the movie and the biography and all of that uh, let's uh, just give some brief contact information to the kind people and this is the director series on the podcast on fire network and for the back catalog of uh, episodes in this um, series and uh, therefore you you have a back catalog of um, shows that focuses on directors such as kirk wong dimensioned ringo lamb and nam nai choi and uh Give us a give us a listen, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, uh, as we go through the movies and you go through the movies, you'll 
uh, find the inspiration to um, try them out if you haven't. So um, podcastonfire.com holds the director series back catalogue, along with all our other shows on Hong Kong cinema, Korean cinema, Japanese cinema, Slicer cinema, etc, etc, etc. If you have any questions or feedback, have you seen any of uh, Mabel Chung and Alex Law's uh, work? Have you seen An Autumn's Tale, A Ta- A Tales of Gold, Painted Faces, etc.? Do write us uh, an email, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Join us over on social media for uh, discussion and so forth and show updates and you can follow that um, uh, all over at our Facebook uh, group. That's uh, where I post most of those things. It's called Podcast on Fire Network so join the discussion and uh, we uh, keep it uh, friendly over there and uh, not that other groups uh, are uh, this cesspool of uh, bickering and blah, 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 but uh, <laughs> it's simply friendly over there so uh, nothing is uh, nothing is uh, off limits in terms of like uh, sacred uh, oh. you can uh, share your opinion on uh, drunken mastery if you like it's not uh, it's not improper to come this late to the game and share your opinion on drunken master please please do. don't share any opinions about films pre 2017 or you're out <laughs> that's the policy Sorry, can I just get that out there? I had to get that out there. It's been too many people posting films from 2015 about films from that year, and it's just really getting to me like that. One of my favorite movies is from 2015. I recently t- t- talked of it on a podcast, the badminton movie Full Strike. That's okay. That's all. I'm going to allow that for you because I'm a fan of tennis. Goddamn so. right. Yeah, that's okay. So uh, join us over there in the group. Uh, click uh, the logo on the top of our website to reach our page. Leave a like and support. Follow our tweets over at that podcast on fire. And uh, you can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, subscribe. And uh, if you like what you hear, leave a star rating over on iTunes and even a written comment. If you want to stream us, you can do so via Stitcher and Spotify. So that's uh, that's it of course my website's uh, sogoodreviews.com and sleazykvideo.com contain a fair amount uh, of uh, Mabel Chung and Alex Law's uh, work in review form I haven't seen uh, like the likes of Echoes of the Rainbow and Tale of Two Cities uh, those are movies I need to catch up on and I obviously will in this coverage but uh, otherwise uh, the 80s and 90s stuff is uh, pretty well covered we are going to give you a rundown of what's to, uh, what to expect here. We're going to keep it simple and, I suppose, historical for this episode, biographical for this episode. We'll tell the tale of the filmmaking duo and partners Mabel Chung and Alex Law in the biography section. And this will include notes on the background of their debut film, uh, which uh, was directed by Mabel, called The Illegal Immigrant. Uh, and uh, we'll obviously conclude the episode by reviewing that film. Let's uh, let's get on to it. Uh, the Illegal Immigrant from 1985. It's a Shaw Brothers movie. And plot from my review of the film, uh, Ching Yung Cho, which um, they, they've named the, li- the lead actor is called that as well. So they, they've used the same name as the lead actor. He is an illegal Chinese immigrant in New York trying to get a green card. Uh, he has a limited grasp of English and uh, not a lot of opportunities are created for him. But he does uh, enter into a... Uh, fake uh, green card marriage with American Chinese uh, lady Li Chu Hong, played by Wu Fu Sheng. And that's done as a way of avoiding, uh, evading uh, authorities. Uh, however, to get to this uh, point uh, at all, originally he, he was forced to borrow money from Chinatown gangsters, and it seems like they are the ones that will come knocking uh, on the door before the immigration officers do and outside of that over time the main characters do begin to form a bond going so far as falling in love so that's uh, the 
uh, gist of it all. So Tommy, uh, I don't know how much uh, exposure you have to uh, the works of uh, Mabel Chung and Alex Law, but as we hit uh, the key points, uh, f- feel free to uh, share any any brief impressions that you might might have had and. Uh, uh, let's uh, do a little back and forth if possible in this uh, biography section because a lot is known about uh, Mabel and Alex uh, they're not elusive filmmakers that uh, refuse to talk to uh, reporters they they certainly do <laughs> I mean uh, if you have the Moon Warriors Hong Kong Legends special edition DVD from back in the day they are prominently featured because they participated quite uh, heavily in the production of that uh, so Mabel Chung, uh, she's a filmmaker renowned for her depiction of issues surrounding immigration, whether from the perspective of Hong Kongers or overseas Chinese. And it's uh, it's a very filmography with different strands, uh, for sure, but then you, you come back to that quite often. And uh, this Hong Kong-born uh, director, she graduated from Hong Kong University with a major in English literature and psychology. But she furthered herself abroad, doing graduation work in drama and writing at the Bristol University in England. You know, being abroad is a theme in her films, but also as a person, because uh, even though she did TV writing and directing for a bit in the late 70s, New York University came calling as she was uh, pursuing a master's degree in film stu- studies at NYU. And that's that's why we get to it, The Illegal Immigrant and An Autumn's Tale being set in New York, because uh, that's uh, where they spent a couple of years of their lives. Uh, Alex and Mabel and their paths uh, intersect at uh, this point, as uh, Alex, being a, a HKU graduate, had left for the United States in 1982 to also pursue a master's degree in film production. And uh, meeting Alex, uh, Mabel said in an interview with Eastern Kicks that they were in the same class and there were only three Chinese, us and a crazy guy from Taiwan. <laughs> so I don't, don't know if they cast him or not. <laughs> because uh, you're oh, crazy. You're in, in the background somewhere. You're in yeah. the movies, kid. Uh, they worked as a team for assignment and uh, this was the path that led them to both being life as well as career partners. And uh, this has remained so to this day. So a strong bond you know you, you you never know when you go into professional work and uh, for money people <laughs> as well and uh, if that bond is going to stay strong but it certainly seems to have um, uh, been that case over the years so mm. uh, all the power uh, to them uh, they they started out uh, as uh, creative partners then on their debut feature 1985's the illegal immigrant uh, which uh, was conceived uh, from a script by alex and uh, they, they were students at uh, New York University at the time. And uh, the script actually attracted the attention of Mona Fong at Shaw Brothers, who contributed a million Hong Kong dollars to complete what was really a thesis movie. And to me, that Tom suggests that Mabel, Alex and crew had been filming to a degree already. Mm. But that money helped them uh, complete the movie. But to, to me, it didn't look like that million dollars means you can come play at the Shaw Brothers stages. To me, it still looked like this was all shot in New York and uh, there was no like back and forth uh, because of this. Uh, so what a piece of confidence by uh, Mona Fong, who at that point was obviously uh, uh, one of the head honchos uh, over at Shaw Brothers. Uh, what a piece of confidence to just um, give these students money, money to complete uh, what Mona probably saw as a movie rich with themes, maybe not the most commercial movie that Shaw Brothers ever put out, but uh, maybe the writing was on the wall in terms of Shaw Brothers. It was 1985, yeah. after all, they weren't producing as much, and I think 1985 is essentially the last production year of Shaw Brothers. Yeah, they could take a few more chances, I think, at this point in the kind of life of the 
of the company and obviously she saw potential and kind of what they maybe already filmed but i agree it doesn't feel like um you know there's a there's a film there a short film there and pieces have been added to it it all feels you know kind of a whole piece i'm sure it was conceptualized but um that money helped them uh, get it done quicker and more smoother maybe get into more locations mm. who knows because uh, yeah, it's, uh, it has location work uh, galore really uh, both pay for the holiday to atlantic city <laughs> we're gonna make the movie <laughs> let's bet the budget of the film on the craps table <laughs> damn it well <laughs> back to making a student film we'll get Bruce Springsteen to write a song about it and it'll all be okay <laughs> it all led to a box office take of close to 5 million Hong Kong dollars and the movie earned Mabel the best new director award at the Hong Kong Film Awards so uh, you know the attention of the industry happened not just from Mona Fong and, and the movie was forgotten after it was released no the industry paid attention critics paid attention uh, I don't have any clippings in terms of the uh, the reception from the time but uh, obviously you don't get a best new director automatically uh, by just shooting a little film so I think they, they saw something that uh, was uh, intelligent uh, coming from uh, coming from Mabel and Alex I think that's a, a rather heartwarming thing that uh, um, they, they were serious filmmakers obviously they were but I don't think they would have predicted that uh, from movie one we're gonna take off yeah and to have such a kind of unique voice from from movie one and kind of know what you want to talk about and what you want to portray on screen from movie one is is kind of very uh very unique indeed and uh, this was an industry that um, took them in and embraced them and they would be the recipient of further entries in the so-called migration trilogy and next came another new york set venture with flown in megastars in the form of uh chai fat cherry chung and the movie was an autumn's tale released in 1987 for the record my favorite hong kong movie of all time <gasps> spoilers spoilers well i've done a solo review of, of it but we're gonna do a, a you know you and i are gonna discuss it back and forth and i I, I I can do uh, five more episodes on it because I think it's a wonderful film. And uh, I'm not sure. Have you seen that movie yet? I have, and I saw it at a very uh, young age. I saw it very early on in my uh, Hong Kong cinema career uh, of watching Hong Kong cinema, funnily enough. Because it's not a movie that's been released like in the UK, in the US. It's always been sort of confined to Hong Kong. It never got a kind of main release over here, yeah, with the initial batch, but I ended up seeing it kind of as I was first getting into um, Hong Kong cinema, and it's one ripe for revisiting for sure as as an older and I definitely would say wiser man. And they're sort of immortal uh, New York I locations. Immortal, yes. uh, no, oh. you're not immortal, but immortal oh. New York locations are certainly present in that movie, including locations that are not uh, there anymore. So yeah. they certainly captured uh, some of that. Uh, Mabel took her migration theme and uh, content uh, from the illegal immigrant uh, to an autumn's tale with less nihilism present here because uh, compared to her debut, because uh, an autumn's tale, we both had a wonderful screen couple of Chai and Fat and Cherry Chung, and but it also has a warmth about it, uh, a tenderness about it, and uh, it was a genuine box office hit. And it has been quoted as being a perfect date movie by critics, and uh, and um, indeed, I, I think it's uh, one of the best, if not the best, Hong Kong movies ever in my in my view. So it's uh, one of those uh, that I can put on anytime and uh, have a good time. 
Uh, during awards season, uh, An Autumn's Tale was given the best Hong Kong Film Award, uh, well, the Hong Kong Film Award for Best Picture, as well as Best Screenplay for Alex Law's script, Best Cinematography, and uh, BCB and A-Class actor Chai Fat was nominated three times in the Best Actor category. Funnily enough, Tom, he won! Yeah, but not for this movie. He won oh, for uh, Diary of the Big Man. No, I think that would have been the year after, actually. Yeah, uh, after, sorry, yeah, my bad. Uh, but uh, he won for City on Fire in Hong Kong, which is obviously uh, well earned. And Ringo won Best Director that year, so not bad to lose out to another breakout voice, I'd say. So yeah, he didn't do bad that year. Yeah, I don't think. Uh, I think uh, City on Fire obviously was was there in the Best Picture category too, but uh, it was it was nice that they. Uh, he made, made sixty four films that year, did he? Sixty four was it about that? Sixty three. That was uh, a <laughs> different era indeed. Uh, Taiwan's Golden Horse Awards, on the other hand, gave Chai Yun Fat the Best Actor Award for his performance in An Autumn's Tale. And enter 1988, the directorial debut of uh, Maple's partner, Alex Law. And Badu also wrote the script uh, for the widely acclaimed Painted Faces, starring Sam Hong, uh, playing his own Peking opera teacher, Master Yu Jim Yuan. And I have to tell you, Tom, it's always nice that it, it's, it's a fairly widely seen movie, m- more mm. now than then. But it, it's always a movie that whenever you bring it up to almost anyone you'll get a response because i think people took this movie on maybe based on samo and realized that they're seeing quality drama too it was never sold as uh, something else because uh, yeah. because how could you and and I, I was always delighted that this movie always got a high a marvelous and a reaction and high score from people regardless if they're into drama or not and i think that's um I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's certainly it's not a difficult movie to get into. It's not arty and too slow. It's simply straight drama, affecting drama. And I don't know, maybe people's in to Painted Faces is the fact that it depicts um, partly the real lives of uh, Jackie and Sam and things like that. But uh, Yeah, well, I think it was, I wouldn't say it was, um, you know, the first film, one of the first films where Samo really got to kind of showcase showcase his dramatic chops, but it was that period in his in his filmography or in his career when he started to kind of make you know stranger films, you know darker films, kind of more dramatic films. Was trying to mix it up a little bit after that kind of golden period throughout the eighties. So the, yeah, that kind of early eighties, uh, sorry, late eighties, early nineties period was a bit more different for him, a bit more dramatic. And I think these are one of the ones where people come in to maybe expecting something and get something else kind of out of it. But yeah, some interesting films in that in that period. This being one of them, or that being one of them. And we're certainly get back to it. We've done a main review in a podcast on fire, but we're going to do a, a sort of look back in a future episode for Painted Faces because I am um, 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 dying to pick up the Blu-ray and uh, I, I waited sort of to do it for for this uh, for this episode. Uh, but it did uh, it uh, depicted that movie Painted Faces, a class of kids uh, training in the dying art of Peking opera. It's a it's a period piece set in the sixties, I believe, and it is notable for the kids that depicted actually being the class Jackie Chan, Yun Byu and Sammo Hung were part of and uh, they are characters in the movie but not the main characters necessarily. You hear them uh, mentioned, you know uh, Jackie, Sammo, things like that but it's not their movie as such mm, which I mm. think is a wise choice uh, because um, yeah. it, uh, it it puts a sort of broader focus on, on the movie not just a focus on those three. Yeah, definitely I agree. 
Uh, it was a major awards winner, with Samo winning Best Actor at the Hong Kong Film Awards and the Taiwan Golden Horse Awards showered painted faces with uh, Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Cinematography and Score. And in Hong Kong it had to beat Rouge as tears go by and the like. So it was a tough crowd to win in that year as well. But uh, Mabel and Alex's uh, vision for plain, straightforward and dramatically rich and understated drama was sort of in full gear here. And the Migration trilogy was set to conclude with 1989's Eight Tales of Gold, again starring Sammo Hung together with Sylvia Chang and directed by Mabel. It was a decently profitable movie upon release. Uh, Painted Faces had quite minimal box office in comparison, so Sammo wasn't enough to bring in an Autumn's Tale type numbers, but you that's probably not... Uh, it's a tall order to beat beat out Chai and Fat and Cherry Chung, you know, and, and Romance. So uh, Painted Faces didn't do Power that. Power Trio. Yeah, very much so. And uh, Eight Taste of Gold uh, was a little bit more profitable upon uh, release and uh, was nominated in the big uh, categories. Uh, it ended up winning Best Score. And uh, then uh, they they veered off a little bit from each other, but not too much. Uh, Alex wrote for a couple of Kenny B and Anthony Chan comedies, but uh, they, they they were kind of infidelity comedies, I believe. Ken, <laughs> you dirty bastard! Like uh, one husband too many was one of the films. So, but you know, for uh, these movies about fooling in Hong Kong cinema, progressive. I like it. That's what we got. Uh, category three or not, we got some fooling movies in, the, in that regard. Uh, but the real emergence of uh, Vidua really didn't happen until 1992. Uh, but I didn't know this until I saw supplemental features on the DVD explaining this. But uh, the pair worked as uh, writers and they got credit as planners on Sammo Hung's uh, swordplay movie Moon Warriors. And what this officially meant, and they talked about this on the... Um, UK DVD was that they were directing a lot of the narrative and drama scenes for Sammo Hung's swordplay movie, while Sammo focused on more on the action. And uh, Sammo had multiple action directors on the film anyway, so it was really this uh, collaborative effort, I suppose, uh, that came together quite splendidly. I really like Moon Warriors, probably because uh, those narrative scene, even scenes, even though Sammo was a good director, but I think it's kind of neat that they got sort of elite drama directors to deal with the Andy Lau and Anita Moy scenes, the more quiet scenes and so forth. And I think it pans out uh, and p- pays off because uh, I-, I personally really like Moon Warriors, both from a story standpoint and the action is that so- sort of classic 90s um, uh, frenzied wire action. And uh, yeah, it- yeah, it's one of the best of that kind of um, that period in the 90s when the kind of Wuxia kind of came back. Wuxia redux that, that, that they had. It's definitely one of the best of, the, of that period, for sure. I also remember the uh, VHS promo trailer in the UK was set to one of the uh, key uh, pieces of music from The Big Gun Down. Ah! And in Morricone's, uh, the big uh, nice. score for The Big Gun Down. It's not in the Hong Kong movie, per se, but the promo trailer for the UK used that music, and it was a perfect fit as it always is when you put Morricone on just about anything. What can I say? We got class. You know what I mean? For sure. I mean, I mean, it made you want to watch the movie, uh, really, Moon Warriors, because it seemed rousing. And the movie corresponded uh, quite well to that. So um, what happened after Moon Warriors, their, uh, their contribution to that? Uh, Alex uh, took the time to direct and co-write uh, what turned out to be the successful giant fat comedy, Now You See Love, Now You Don't, from 1992, co-starring... Uh, Carol Chang, Anthony Wong, and the likes. So, 
if you get Chaya Fat, then then the box office is gonna be solid, apparently. So sorry, Samo, but uh, <laughs> more awards versus box office, but uh, they could do both, I suppose. Uh, and I'm looking forward to revisiting that because I think it was their first sort of straight comedy that uh, they were both involved in. So uh, not this like my n- not a lot of like heavy migration stuff, but rather a star, you know, a star sort of a romantic comedy. So. They uh, worked uh, hard and long to get the 1997's The Song Sisters made, uh, which is about the spouses of historical characters Sun Yat-sen, which is the father of modern China, Dr. H.H. H. Kung, uh, who was China's richest man and finance minister, and Chiang uh, Kai-shek, uh, the leader of the political party Kuomintang, uh, com- you know, commander-in-chief of the Chinese army uh, and later president of the, of the Republic of China. The movie cons- uh, concerned uh, uh, their, their wives and uh, it was a hot potato due to its politically sensitive and historical subject matter and it was initially censored and cut by mainland censors but later approved for release after Mabel Cheung play- pleaded her case after a lengthy period and process um, mm. uh, we, which I think you know it's 1997 and I don't think that was easy back then no to... that was a tough tough year to kind of yeah, to get that well, film made, well, that year, it? and also deal with politics and what mainland, you know, try to argue that this should be seen while mainland China says, uh, no, it shouldn't. Yeah. And that would have, would have been the end of it, you'd think. But I'm glad that she uh, stood her ground and um, and got it, and got it seen. Uh, but the pair had not abandoned uh, sort of memories of being students. Uh, no, uh, so they they had a little uh, look back uh, and uh, nostalgic. Uh, piece made in the form of 1998's City of Glass which it wasn't a rethread of their days in New York necessarily but uh, Robert Mabel's student days at the University of Hong Kong and that was woven into a tale that uh, had like cross-cut narratives uh, set in 1997 and then it cut back, cuts back to 1960s and the likes uh, uh, Leon Lai is in it I think it's an early role for Daniel Wu as well uh, so uh, we're gonna look back on that obviously and being set in 1997 in a movie made the year after the handover it is a reflection of the Hong Kong handover as well to a degree so uh, 2001's Beijing Rocks uh, starring Daniel Wu Shukei it wasn't a big honor in Hong Kong, uh, but middling to decent reviews still singled out its mix of Hong Kong production values and uh, an apolitical story. Uh, considering it's set in China, it wasn't that political, but Robert concerned uh, the underground music scene and then brought together worlds such as the American Chinese world, Taiwanese, mainland Chinese, and uh, the movie stars Daniel Wu, Xu Kei, among other people. So um, you got a sort of a melting pot there of um, of America and uh, and Taiwan, if you will. Uh, but then uh, Mabel turned to documentary work, and uh, this was something that Tom... Uh, made sure I got into the um, to the outline uh, to not miss because I, I wasn't aware of this at all. In 2003, there was something called Traces of a Dragon released. And the subject, Jackie Chan. Not in a traditional sense because this uh, tracked back to the story of Jackie Chan's father revealing to him that he was not the biological child of his parents and that he had elder siblings in China. And uh, Mabel and Alex were apparently approached by Jackie or his company. He, he wanted uh, this to be documented, uh, the, the revelation of his family background. So they flew with Jackie to Australia to log material, but there was no set plan or really expectation in terms of what they would capture and assemble into a, a final documentary form. 
and uh, as they immersed themselves and absorbed more a theme for the documentary started to form from a chinese historical perspective but eventually this would trace forward to to a latter feature movie so they did the documentary but uh, they put something uh, a bit more fictional together too they, this stayed with them to that degree you did watch it were you just aware of traces of a dragon as a documentary yeah i saw it a few years ago i managed to track down a copy of it i don't know whether it's been available whether it's been commercially subtitled or, or what but i remember finding it kind of with subtitles and i don't know whether it's a fan but i remember getting to track it down uh in, interested in seeing it when i'd heard about it but yeah, it's really interesting. It, it kind of really humanizes, um, you know, Jackie. Is it is it is it loose as made? They follow around Jackie and see and um... stuff. There's a mix of kind of archive footage, a mix of kind of telling Jackie's uh, story, kind of his father's story, and his father kind of had an interesting life and and uh, was kind of uh, his 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 time during kind of the war and uh, the way he had to kind of uh, he had to kind of flee. He fled from China. Um, during during kind of the the 40s i think late 40s early 50s and came to hong kong and it's you know met met his met jackie's mother and it's really it's really interesting story um but it kind of humanized jackie in, in a kind of a, a way that you don't really see in terms of you know interviews and stuff he really looks kind of a bit lost and a bit kind of um trying to find himself really trying to trace his kind of his history and kind of find out where he's came from and what it kind of all means so it, it was it was really really interesting um documentary but i think i think it's still knocking about if, if people want to see it but yeah it, it it kind of it's 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 a good film in terms of really kind of just showing that just showing the kind of history of, of china as well a lot of kind of history behind that and kind of a lot of the plight of a lot of the people um, who lived kind of during certain regimes uh, of the country. Really interesting stuff. Cool. Well, we'll see if we can look uh, look up an official or unofficial copy for sure. Maybe it's on YouTube. Who knows? I think his, his dad actually was was one who who went against the communists and actually kind of fought against them and, and fled it because he saw it as kind of obviously a very you know oppressive regime and uh, it's really interesting kind of really interesting it's more of a, a look back at his father really than than jackie himself but it's, it's kind of the fallout of that and then jackie dealing with with that yeah you don't i i don't know much about too much about his father other than what i've seen in high risk which is not oh. uh, which is just a <laughs> piss take on everything having said that i don't think they're making fun of jackie's father that much in high risk it's more jackie himself because uh, i i just love the fact that they got wuma to play jackie's father and it it's uh it's a dead ringer for him in a way maybe it's just a hat but it works so <laughs> you put that hat on anybody and it's perfect uh, Mabel and Alex uh, co-directed a short movie for the one colon 99 collection of short movies by high profile directors and what this was it was a project in response to SARS um, and uh, it was made as obviously a charity project proceeds uh, of uh, the DVD and so forth would go to charity um, and it's a little uh, short movie starring Anthony Wong I believe so really warm warm but uh, as with many of those shorts uh, we're talking like one two minutes of uh, but uh, still effective pieces you know for mood and uh, being uplifting was uh, a key thing and uh, an important thing for these filmmakers and uh, uh, that's not a wrong wrong-headed idea during uh, during the SARS outbreak and so forth so no it's got a crazy directorial directorial list as well hasn't it Johnny Toe Choi Hark Stephen Chow, 
Teddy Chen, a lot of people yeah, on and, that one. Yeah, Andrew Lau and things like that. They they, mm. they shot it during uh, one of the ending scenes in Infernal Affairs 2 because Eric Tsang, uh, he has a par- uh, there's a party scene at the end of Infernal Affairs 2 and there, there's a bit in the short he's in where he's in the same wardrobe and he's addressing the camera and, and things like that. So it was uh, during that time as well. Uh, the pair stayed quiet for a bit until 2010's Echoes of the Rainbow hit it big. Uh, directed by Alex Law and starring Simon Yam and Sandra Mm, it was about a working family whose son goes on to stardom as an athlete but becomes ill with leukemia. It was a period piece set in the 60s and uh, this one also scored big at the Hong Kong Film Awards with Alex's own script winning an award as well as Simon Yam picking up what I believe was his first Hong Kong Film Award for Best actor the thing is he's been busy but he's been busy doing movies that are not meant for awards necessarily <laughs> you know what i mean so maybe it's yeah. not that much of a shocker that it took that long uh that, to win a hong kong film award because you weren't expecting him to be, win it for you know uh, random action pieces or dr lamb or don't stop my crazy love for you and things <laughs> movies like that yeah of course of course yeah well gigolo and whore wasn't uh, necessarily uh, <laughs> that's an award winner if i ever heard one so uh, that was nice we're, we're gonna get to that I still haven't seen that uh, a couple of short movies across uh, 2013 uh, between 2013 and 15 such as Indigo and the story of O followed but the next big feature and this tracks back to Traces of a Dragon was Mabel Chung's A Tale of Three Cities it was released in 2015 written by the duo and starring Lao Ching Wan and Tang Wei it was based on the lives of Jackie Chan's parents as detailed in that documentary and Mabel felt inspired to make a movie about their generation of Chinese, which was um, her parents' generation as well, who relocated from city to city in search of a better home and loved ones during wartime, because it's set during the Second Sino-Japanese War in the 1930s. And uh, Jackie Chan, who didn't know these stories growing up uh, about his parents and so forth, gave his blessings, but didn't want to personally be creatively involved because sometimes he puts his producing name on movies you know he he uh, he produced um, uh, at least uh, you know executive producer who knows but his name is on rouge and center stage and so forth yeah. so so but his name isn't on this as such and it was a multi-nominee at the hong kong film awards but didn't end up winning uh, anything and i think that's it currently in terms of uh, these two there's no announced uh, titles uh, so uh, uh, that gets us up to 2015 and now we go back to 1985 and uh, their first movie, The Illegal Immigrant, after so many awards, uh, we go back to the one that uh, meant their first award, their Shaw Brothers drama. So let's do some brief opinions first of all. And uh, it, it's a rewatch for me because I picked up this DVD when Celestial put out the remastered uh, print because I was a fan of Mabel and I wanted to see the beginnings of it all. And uh, it, will, it will never rank as Shaw Brothers' finest gem out of the revolts or anything, or Mabel Chung's either. It was their finest film of 1985. That might be the case. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, the, uh, Kung Fu classics still came out that year. Uh, Disciples of the 36th Chamber, Opium and the Kung Fu Master, but... Uh, you're right, you're still just towards the end of that phase. Indeed. Uh, b- b- before I continue, it, it's so amazing that they, they always talk of like uh, actors like T. Long. Oh, he, he he's fallen from grace. He was a star once, and then a better tomorrow came along. But it was like he was in a 
kung fu Still movie that he was working the year before yeah, what are you talking yeah. about like he was a fallen star for five months <laughs> and then he, he got wasn't a in again. 16 films for four months exactly. yeah like he only did the one per year do you know what i mean it was it's so lazy that guy jesus christ but uh, and it won't be mabel chung's finest movie either it's a first movie so it is roughly executed but it, it does accomplish some fine things thematically uh it has mostly workable natural acting and it's a debut work and you would expect it to be be a little bit unpolished but i think that there's an intelligent intelligence in there uh her style quickly became refined two two years later which is the assuring thing and the the illegal immigrant is an interesting warm-up exercise that has intelligence about it but not as much dramatic punch necessarily but but you 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 gotta put it into perspective it was a student movie that that was financed for whatever reason. Who knows how Mona... I want to know how Mona Fong found out about this. If, if uh, they were trying to lobby Hong Kong producers for... for If there was a system in place. Well, she was she was sleeping with that crazy oh, Taiwanese guy. You know, the crazy Taiwanese. They had a little thing going on. He was like, yo, I know some pretty good filmmakers. I'm insane classism. Hook us up. I think that's what happened. I don't know. I could, I could have just made that up, but I'm you sure I read that somewhere. You probably did. So let's stick to some facts here, including your Likely. short opinion of the illegal immigrant. First of all, <laughs> short as possible. Okay, <laughs> it's. I agree with yeah most what you said, but it's um, it's solid. If anything, it's definitely a, bl- a blueprint for the the kind of stuff, um, the themes and the kind of vibes that that later explore migration, romance within that, social issues. It's. It's got it kind of all here. Really. It ticks a lot of the boxes in terms of um, what they would later cover, uh, what they would kind of flourish with, but a bit more unpolished, a bit more, you know, less refined than they would later kind of make it. And less of a kind of, as you said earlier when you talked about an autumn's tale, less of a romantic perspective. There is romance, but it's more of a kind of pessimistic viewpoint. Mm. Has a pe- more pessimistic viewpoint to it, I would say. The leads were presumably amateurs or class friends from uh, NYU, I would guess, because these, both of the leads appear in an autumn's tale as well. Yeah. So because that, that was obviously shot on location or mostly shot on location. So um, uh, who knows if they came from the drama department or not? But they they, they weren't fl- flown in, and they, it it looks like it that, that it is an amateur production. But it's star, I think, Tom is setting because the New York setting really feels. Uh, present because it's not like this is a sort of second grade play with cardboard sets or you know that would be a bit disappointing but it has you know present environments inside and out whether the sweatshop at the beginning of the movie uh, with all the seamstresses and all of that and uh, they still have capable crew here technically because the cinematography is professional and fluid and uh, so it's not this sort of handheld 16 millimeter roughly patched together work or anything yes it's remastered so obviously it's going to look better now but uh, it's setting i think it's uh, one of the better impressions i take from this movie that uh, we we believe this is new york and not this uh, manufactured nonsense or anything so i agree glad uh, bob bukowski actually made the uh, the hong kong uh, movie poster because <laughs> his name made it because i think it's a big it is a big part of the film that that would be the uh, cinematographer. The cinematographer, so yeah. The, you know, he seems to really relish the locations, and it always looks good, even if 
what's going on with the characters falls a bit flat from time to time. It always looks, you know, really good and authentic and, you know, gritty uh, in spots as, you know, 80s New York was. Yeah, it's, it, it, this is uh, long before, and they're, they're, they're not shooting in Times Square necessarily, but obviously it's still long before the whole cleanup of uh, New York. So uh, at this time, if you were to go into areas where there were a lot of strip clubs and so forth, you would, would have been able to capture that uh, quite easily because it's um, it's all present in. Uh, and an autumn's tale doesn't do that either. I, I certainly can spot that they were returning to certain locations for scenes in an autumn's tale, uh, certain alleys where there's walking talks and uh, there's a scene outside of a, a theater or a cinema in an autumn's tale where Chai and Fat is arguing with a police officer that I think. Uh, is a location they're also in here in the illegal immigrants. So it's one of those. I, mm. I think I've seen that street corner before. <laughs> yeah, it seems. I mean, it seems like if you had these great locations and you were going to use them, or you you had you need to find somewhere to kind of use for similar scenes, you would go to the same location because obviously they look they look so good uh, on film. Yeah, and it does feel real. And um, you know, I'm 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 sure this was um, you know there, there was a certain familiarity of their daily lives or that they researched what the Chinese community was like in New York because it really gives often an impression that uh, that they they know what they want to capture if we go back to the sweatshop mm-hmm. and and uh, but also the fact that characters are living with this sort of cloud of uh, am I gonna get a green card or not uh, our main character has entered presumably illegally you know um he's mm-hmm. borrowed money to enter the country illegally so that's obviously a cloud that's present uh, over him and we, which is a fairly nice uh, uh thread throughout the movie uh the tension in the movie that isn't played as tension but that that, that is the tension of the movie how are you gonna avoid authorities and uh how are you gonna progress how, how are you gonna learn english better and how are you gonna be able to sort of bullshit your way through these random inspections by immigration officers and things like that. So, uh, and, and the production values are quite, uh, you know, immense considering that they they go on to uh, graffiti-filled uh, uh, subway cars and shoot that way. And I think that's, it's not like, look at us, but rather this is where the characters would have been at. So let's just capture that for a little bit. And I think it just, it feels real. The environment, I think, again, I'm going to say this again, the environment is a star without it being a look at us type of moment. We're in New York. It definitely doesn't romanticize the location or kind of what's, you know, what's kind of around the characters. It definitely just gives it more of a, you know, straightforward kind of matter of fact, everyday way. Which, again, as filmmakers, uh, you know, Melba Chong and Alex Lord did, did a lot kind of during their career. I mean, there was... There's an art to making that work because it can also it, be yeah. very boring if you're just straightforward. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. But I think it was more just the location seems organic to the characters rather than this kind of... You know, which we got in the 80s, a lot of Hong Kong films that were like, let's go on holiday. You know, let's kind of have a travel log. Yeah, let's kind yeah of... that authentic uh, New York experience that was A Bit of Tomorrow too. Yeah, of course. I mean, that that came to mind as soon as I mentioned, as I was starting to mention uh, films uh, like that. But yeah, it just feels like it doesn't feel cartoonish or stereotypical. It just feels like kind of authentic and real. And they're not kind of trying to, you know, glamorize it or kind of portray it in a certain way. It's just yeah. this is where the story's taking place. It's, it's a slice of life for for the main uh, character, you know, and uh, and and the filmmakers are not. I mean, it has darkness, but I didn't pick up on any sort of 
cynicism from the get-go, like five minutes yeah. in, we care so much about humans and we hate the system. But rather, they they build that up as a fact that, well, he's had to venture into areas where he has to borrow money from gangsters. But to me, Tommy didn't feel like a fairly sort of gut punch type of movie it's a for the most part it's a fairly calm slice of life even though it's, it's not uplifting yeah. but it's it's still fairly calm you know yeah i'd agree again like saying kind of the nihilism to it but it's not really a again it's not kind of a hardcore kind of you know nihilism it's more just this happens to characters and these events take place and it comes to a kind of natural conclusion it's not really trying to you know, force anything down your throat in terms of a, a tone or any narrative choices that seem kind of over the top. It's just very kind of low-key and, and kind of plays itself out. And considering those are the instincts of the filmmaker at hand, the first-time first time filmmaker, filmmaker yeah, some people just have it in them, man. Well, you think if you're going to have a shot at, you know, a film, you'd think a lot of filmmakers think it's the last one when they did the first one, so they're trying to get you know, shoehorn kind of everything in that. Yeah, yeah, but then it would have come out as too anxious, and it never of comes course, off as too yeah, anxious. It never comes out like that. It's the complete opposite of what you'd expect, you know, a first-time filmmaker to be. So otherwise, they would have just flashed, you know, more hardcore elements. You know, the shooting, you know, hookers and strip clubs, and uh, getting and pictures with like Sonic the Hedgehog and Buzz Lightyear in Times Square and stuff. In 1985. I don't know, let's check. <laughs> yeah, that fact-checking is going to be quite false, like Toy Story was in 1995, damn it. <laughs> I like scenes when uh, the lead actor, Ching Yong Cho, he is really good when he's in these pressured moments when he can't use his limited English to even serve a customer who wants to buy a donut. He tries, like, phrases, and it doesn't work. It's just random. He, he doesn't know. I, I think... As much of an amateur actor he is, those are the moments where that that I think he's good at when he's pressured a little bit, when he just throws it out there and hopefully it will go away, uh, mm. whatever situation is in front of him. And obviously the same is true in his various scenes with the um, with uh, the Western immigration officers that come knocking randomly on his door. So I think those are the scenes where their lead actor become, you know, he he stays with you in those scenes. Uh, in in my opinion, mm. he's he's good. I don't, I don't think you know he's given the best material. I think those scenes, particularly with the the immigration officers, and also that the guy that they owe money to, I think there's some kind of naive narrative choices and just a bit of an experience. It seems concerning how the characters should interact and how the scenes should play out, which. Mm take me out of the film a little bit i think they just suffer a little in that regard but it just it just it's it just seems like it's a little bit of an experience really in terms of how to kind of a scene should play out and how the characters should interact there's a bit of kind of stop and start to it but especially their interaction later on uh, uh him during and, the back uh, end uh, yeah like, gets... like there's some arguments that they have and uh as because they're not a couple and they're not gonna fall in love that easily or at all but their their arguments are not uh i think uh some of the weaker sort of actor interactions uh but but i understand structure of it all and yeah. uh, then you come back to the fact that well they're they're, they're students and they're learning drama and they're not backing away from it. They're going to try and execute it. Yeah, it's better to try and fail, isn't it, than not, you know, have something boring and not kind of try. But it, but it doesn't sound to me like you thought that the movie then just completely backflipped 
on itself and started to fail hard. It sounds like you were still understand you, you you understood that well. They weren't aiming to be Hong Kong filmmakers with this movie. They were still students. So. Yeah, of course. I mean, again, it's it's going against kind of trends and what really was kind of popular at the time. It's really they they. It seems like they don't have a sight on kind of to be popular or to kind of have a box office success. It's more about kind of a, you know telling a tale that's quite personal to them. And I think they stuck you know, more or less kind of with that throughout their career, and it kind of starts here, but... If anything, they stuck with their thesis, I think, yeah, which, uh, yes, regardless which if they is... wrote it perfectly throughout, this was their thesis, and they, they, they don't lose track of that, even if it's awkwardly, awkward sometimes uh, along the way, but, you know... Yeah, the acting, I mean, the acting is a bit ropey at times, but that makes sense, I mean, a lot of first time, and for what, from what I can, you know, find out, one-time actors, you know, here... So you're gonna kind of got to keep that in mind in terms of what it is, what what the film is. But I think because the fact it looks so professional, sometimes it fools you into thinking that it's maybe a, a more assured hand yeah. uh, behind behind the camera. They didn't fly in there too long with that extra million dollars at their disposal. No, he was <laughs> no, he was too busy having his uh, sabbatical from Shaw Brothers. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I I do like uh, the marriage scene at the registration office. I suppose I, I think it's quite fun because obviously it, it, there's not a hint of romance there. It's ceremony, so it's naturally awkward. And I had a little bit of a laugh because she crosses her fingers behind her back when when saying I do and he sees she does that and then when he's supposed to say uh, yes they probably like say yes he crosses his fingers and shows the priest or whoever is uh, doing the ceremony I do and he just okay what a fool <laughs> but but I thought the, the, those moments were played they, they, they were cute because the, the, there was a timing to those comedic moments you know because uh, filmmaking is about assembling and pace and getting the beats right and um, even though it's one beat out of thousands in a movie I think uh, that was cute because we know that this green card marriage is uh, not all lovey-dovey and uh, it's uh, merely for the records do, do, do you think when the darkness start to enter the movie, you know, because there's looming death, there's a young kid that seems to be um, lured in a little bit about uh, um, he likes uh, the sights and sounds of criminal life and things like that. So the whole gangster side, uh, is, is it effective, effective and punchy and dark or what's your general thoughts on, on, on that whole thing? Again, I think it just it just fits with the more subdued tone of the film. I don't think it's like the classic Hong Kong thing of doing a kind of 180 or a 360, I should say, into, you know, completely kind of going into something and then back around again and it kind of changing the mood and the, the kind of pitch of the film. Um, There's no loud uh, gangsters pointing fingers at each other. No, it's not. It's it's more kind of subdued and fits with the rest rest of the film, to be honest. So when it comes, it, it just feels kind of organic to to the rest of the uh, the rest of the piece so yeah during the back end it all starts to kind of happen and, and things kind of transpire and it's a it's a mix it's a mixed bag of stuff that last half hour yeah is, I think. yeah i mean they don't fully own the darkness i i i, I mm. just state that but so rebounds i think by the end because the intelligence was still there kind of but uh, I, I do agree they don't push the darkness in that awkward way where everything is now ominous yeah uh, like even the um uh, mid-movie um, well, let's call it a gunplay scene. It's it's obviously not designed to be uh, like long arm of the law type of uh, gritty <laughs> stuff, but it isn't 
terrible because it's there on the streets. Uh, it's got uh, good sound effects and uh, it, it's all real. It's still it's yeah. still real. And uh, that sort of looming tension that death represents in this movie is there without Mabel or Alex's, Alex's script pu- uh, pushing buttons sort of awkwardly. Like, this is how you do darkness, right? They, they do feel experienced. That's the thing I, I feel in the movie, even though they were going to get better really quick. I, I can sense a an aura of experience present here, uh, or like uh, naturally, uh, a, a natural sort of instinct for for uh, for scripting and directing and things like that. Mm, definitely, and it never gets like too depressing either, or kind of too kind of uh, you know over the top. It could, and it, which you could easily go kind of you're dealing with a tale of kind of immigrants and and. Uh, them trying to survive and it could go kind of either way and it could go into kind of a bit of a melodramatic um area but again it doesn't it kind of just sits on the edge really i i agree that's a way good way of putting it that uh, it, it survives that the fact that the performers are not charismatic as such and but but the writing has neat touches like after the the argument that uh he in a few scenes later she needs him you know uh, he, he needs to come to her apartment or whatever and i think she has criticized him for not wearing proper shoes or and uh, then he comes back and sort of is uh, a bit uh, small me and says i didn't have time to put on shoes <laughs> you know <laughs> it didn't feel like the most it, it didn't turn that main lead relationship into something hugely dynamic because they they don't get that great drama out of their scenes together but i think the overall theme and message of the film and their predicament is yeah. is fine and strong enough for us to forget that as performers they don't they don't lead and they were destined to be nominated or anything like that but that's obviously fine they, they come off a little bit better in an autumn's tale she's seen it a little bit more she is the um uh, the girlfriend of Danny Chan's character. Uh, when Cherry Chung comes to New York, uh, she expects to meet her boyfriend Danny Chan, but he has found someone new, and that is our uh, leading lady from uh, from this movie. And our leading uh, man is one of Chang Fat's uh, friends. Uh, you see mm. mid movie, uh, looks a little bit more confident, a little bit more like, "Hey, what's going on?" So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so obviously they still knew these uh, uh, people. Uh, do you think it's trying to like point fingers to like the immigration system and the and and, to, and tries to be uh, provide a lecture because I I didn't think that was there personally it was, it was too it was this story rather than this big social commentary angry yeah I I agree it's 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 kind of a an interesting way of doing social commentary where the drama itself and the setting kind of leads to a possible you know conversation or, or kind of thoughts on it rather than it just you know kicking you in the teeth with because, it because maybe the system isn't uh, flawed necessarily it's just the way that this character got to new york yeah and uh, the system is doing its thing even though it's difficult um i didn't get a sense of them necessarily re- writing the thesis of the system is flawed that's our thesis i, I didn't get the sense that that was it no, it was a bit. It's, it's a, a lot, a lot more kind of subtle than that, really. And again, I think they're they're more interested in trying to provide a a good story and a kind of interesting characters rather than this kind of. And again, I think that would have been worse if it was this heavy-handed kind of political stance with 
you know, uh, amateur actors or kind of first time actors, I think that would probably would make it, you know, less of an appealing film. The fact they went for kind of sort of drama, uh, and kind of kept within the range or, or the talents of, of the actors that they had, I think was was the sensible choice. And no one, no one even has like an ending speech of like, "I wish, I wish I'd done something different. I wish I la 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 la." It, it, it's not overly explicit, and I think it's to its advantage mostly because I, I got this, so it didn't need it to be that much explicit. Granted, the, the ending violence is explicit for dramatic purposes that this has it's been building up to this uh, and it probably would have benefited from a more seasoned action director but still it's trying content here and theme and drama well enough and uh, that mm. it would end in violence uh, is uh, not something we're surprised by because it's sort of been present uh, but, uh, but but I think Tom without spoiling it if we I, I think the final funeral scene writes the ship a little bit more and if we would have ended on a freeze frame of uh, of someone's blooded corpse, I I I would have thought like, well, that that that's a film student's way out of it, you know. Yeah, or them just like jumping in the air and then freezing, <laughs> yeah, freezing yeah. on that. That would have been better, I think. The clock company that sponsored us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, but but I really, I, I think it's it's pessimistic as it ends, but it it maintained the solid intelligence. The final funeral scene made me think of what they had been sort of calmly talking about to us throughout the movie. And, and it was left with, well, the the difficulty for the characters necessarily, um, it, it's going to go on, the, diff- the difficulty of the characters. It, the movie doesn't end with a freeze frame of him with his green card. Smile! Yeah, it, It's course, not that type of, of movie. Because, uh, and, and I think it's to its benefit that uh, it doesn't close the circle on each and every story necessarily. Because uh, we, we're left with the fact that, well... It did. This was the limited experience we had with this character. Where is it gonna go? Is America the answer? Who knows? But it it's not a cop out type of ending. I'm sure people will say it is a cop out type of ending. But it was left with. I was left with that. I understood the predicament and the dramatic intentions, however rough it might have been in between, uh, you know, or rather towards the end. But they wouldn't have awarded Mabel if they didn't think this had something to say both yeah. from an abroad perspective or from the internal perspective of of Hong Kong and uh yeah so i, I think it, uh, it it's it, it's not like this frequent revisit that is going to wow you over but if you're interested in in Mabel and Alex's journey this one you know was given a chance to be in circulation again via you know their remaster job by Celestial in the 2000s and uh um, because I'm, I'm sure this was fairly off the radar up until po- up until that point. Yeah, I would think I would I would think so. To be honest, um, I, I, I agree with with kind of pretty much everything you said. I really do. I think it's it's interesting as as a introduction to their filmography. It's it's kind of a, a blueprint for a lot of the themes and topics that later cover. And yeah, it just comes to a natural conclusion that fits with the rest of the tone of the film. And um, yeah, it's it's you know I don't know whether it's one of the highlights of their of their kind of filmography, but it's definitely a, a key a key film um, in their filmography for sure. And boy, did they get better and quick! <laughs> the, 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 Quite quickly, the, indeed. The yeah. leap into an autumn's tale is um, and confidence in terms of conveying. Dramatic and romantic beats is um, is is quite something, and it's not a showy movie either. Uh, it's uh, it relies on story, 
stars and the stars bring it in in uh, in spades. Well, that's it. It's kind of like once you can get kind of very experienced actors involved, they're kind of a, maybe a bit more natural and a bit more kind of used to uh, you know what they're doing. Then that makes you know a big difference in terms of, of the quality. You know, not to take away from this, but obviously it's it's a very kind of different film in the next film that they make compared to this. Yeah, I can't remember much nihilism in subsequent work necessarily. I mean, Painted Faces is sad, but it's not mm. uh, oppressive or anything. Uh, mm. So, uh, you know, as an example. Um, and now you see Love, Now You Don't was definitely not nihilistic. <laughs> I mean, it sounds sad, but it's not. <laughs> the smiles of Chai Fat on a poster will fool you. <laughs> That's all you need. That's so, all you need to get by. So there it is. Uh, I uh, don't have, have any other notes. I'm, I'm glad uh, you uh, saw the movie for what it was uh, and all of that. Uh, not that I was afraid of you coming down and like, oh, we can't do this director series anymore because this is an amateur hour. Well, it, <laughs> it, it, it was because they were. <laughs> so. I don't want to do the rest of the series because I can't sit through an hour and a half of this, Ken. I'm sorry. I'm, I, that's it. I'm done. You you will experience more fun, Chai and Fat, trying to speak English scenes in An Autumn's Tale. That's what I want. That's what I signed on for. That's that's all that I want. Now, I mean, if you see, if you look back at some of the other director series we've done, that there was probably worse films, worst introductory, worst kind of one or two uh, first couple of films in a filmmaker's filmography than we have here. You know, for sure. So it's I think once you kind of get past get past the kind of or just kind of understand the kind of backstory behind the film and the, the kind of what the film's going for the tone of the film then you should be uh, you should be okay if you go in expecting you know the prequel to an autumn's tale probably going to be a bit disappointed it's going to feel a little bit lesser in, indeed uh, uh, but uh, good good perspective on it so well done uh, as for availability uh, since Shaw Brothers put money into this it was also their movie rights wise and it was released in a remastered version uh, DVD as part of their Shaw Brothers range on disc it is still listed as um, available on DVD and VCD and uh, eBay also lists the Taiwanese counterpart that is identical to the Hong Kong one so it is actually still available for very reasonable prices uh, and it's uh, the Taiwanese counterpart is also English friendly. It has the subtitles, so it's a uh, it's a movie shot in uh, in uh, in Cantonese and uh, English. But uh, they didn't they didn't shoot uh, sync sound, so uh, but uh, uh, they keep it uh, to uh, to that mixture for logical reasons, which you never know how movies are gonna treat Westerners if they're just gonna dub them with sort of weirdly accented Cantonese. Uh, uh, stuff, but obviously they they keep the immigration officers. So, yeah, they speak English and all of that. And uh, and I've seen worst Wilo acting in movies. By the way, these guys were okay They're considering. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, it's not. What is he a greasy manager, right? From a better tomorrow too. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that but uh, not everything can be and that is it's not quite that quality no not that quite glorious. that's a very individual quality we have there with that with that film exactly well 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 um let's uh, conclude this one then i haven't mapped out the uh, next episode uh, other than it's going to be an autumn's tale but we're going to try and squeeze in some quick take uh, reviews and so forth but i haven't uh, decided exactly how it's going to play out but the uh, next episode will be an autumn's tale for main discussion and looking forward to watching it myself again and looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it uh, for this revisit for the first time in who knows 10 years or so, so. yeah likewise yeah yeah definitely I, I i mirror your opinions ken but obviously with your name in the place of mine does that make sense 
Just edit, edit that. Just edit that. Just edit that. Miros Ken. Ken, Ken is good. <laughs> and uh, he is the lead, great leader. I mean, he's he's a nice just, guy. <laughs> just set me up as you always do. It's I fine. do. It's it's okay. a, <laughs> post-credit is my little assembly of... Uh, I am torn. My pants are off. I pooped them. It's good. I like those. That's what I, that's what I listen back for. So a little bonus for you. Anyway, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, including the back catalogue of the director's series, please visit podcastonfire.com. All the relevant social media links and streaming links and so forth are available on the website as well as in the show post. So uh, let us know what you thought of the episode and uh, let us know if you have any thoughts on Mabel Chung and Alex Law as uh, filmmakers. Uh, and, uh, and if you don't know anything about them and you follow... Uh, this series and therefore their journey then let us know along the way uh, what you think uh, what you feel of uh, uh, what's the sort of vibe you get from uh, of the filmmakers as we discuss their uh, movies uh, so um, it's uh, it's gonna be a fun journey as always so I, th- I think so i think we've got a pair of interesting filmmakers here i don't know whether we can handle two filmmakers at the same time ken i mean i don't know you might have put a lot of lot of kind of pressure on us there but I think it should be an interesting ride, yeah. In, in this case, it felt odd to separate them because they aren't. Oh, of course. Yeah, <laughs> so, of course. Uh, of course. Uh, so it, it uh, brings a twist to the director's series. So th- there he is, but uh, let's uh, sign off. I'll be Kennedy and with me uh, was they always lovely. Tom KW. So say oh, bye, thanks, buddy. man. Best compliment I've had in a few years. Cheers. Cheers, Ken. It's been a pleasure as always. And thanks, guys, for listening. <laughs> Go